0: This is Field Architecture, a podcast on architecture and the real world. My name is Mark Minkel. I'm here with my fellow hosts, Renee Boer. Hi. And Charlie Clemos. Hello. Who is in charge of today's episode. Charlie, could you could you briefly run us through this episode?
1: Yep. It's an episode about London, first of all. It uses as a starting off point the uh, music of Geica a rapper based in London from Brixton. Uh, I talked to Ash Sarkar as well, who's the senior editor of uh, Navara Media. She's had some involvement with his work directly. And um, I talked to both of them about the legacy of the London riots, uh, but more broadly as a sort of attempt to explain the past, present, and speculating on the future of London and using London to understand a particular moment um, that we're going through in terms of cities uh, and um, using uh, kind of music as a as a sort of framework yeah. to understand that.
0: Yeah, because why, why music? Why do you think music works uh, in that way or can work? Well, I mean, way?
1: yeah, obviously it's like a it's, it's a bit of a departure in a certain sense from some of the failed architecture output in the past, but... Um, I mean, really, the the useful thing about music and culture more generally is that it um, it, it it can articulate a mood, right? Like uh, it, it's able to allow you to kind of understand um, that cities aren't these impersonal environments where kind of uh, emotions don't have uh, an impact on the way that they are structured and the way that things change and th- the actual. Understanding of architecture itself.
2: Yeah, so, I mean yeah, that's interesting. But like, uh, yeah, what's also quite interesting is that music, or maybe art in more general, can also relay more speculative uh, imaginations, right, of the city.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think that's like a, an important thing to sort of like return back to is that you know what we're talking about really, and th- we're doing it through Geiger's music is the the London riots, but also a particular moment in time that transcends particular urban environments and. I mean, I think that's something that you, you've you got kind of a little bit more um, knowledge about, René, in terms of this moment in 2011. I don't know if you wanted to sure. f- sort of yeah. uh, give a bit of a background. And-
2: yeah, so the the London Ryans happened like in the late summer of, of 2011, right, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting if you look at this year, 2011, what like what the other things that happened. I mean, it started in, in January when... Uh, with, like, the Tunisian uh, revolution, like, in, uh, in full blossom, so to say. And, like, very briefly afterwards, the Egyptian revolution, uh, which started, like, late January, and then soon led to the departure of the, of the former president of, uh, of Egypt, um, Hosni Mubarak. And, but it's not only, like, the, well, this series of Arab revolutions. I mean, it's something that then pretty quickly spread as, a, as quite a sustained movement to the rest of Europe. I mean, we've seen the, the Indignados, but also like the the, the, the square occupations in, in Greece, for example, that were already like taking place before, um, and yeah, uh, and later that year, actually after the riots, we saw also the series of uh, of occupy um, occupations, so to say, uh, not just in well, in London also, but also here in Amsterdam and many other cities. So it was this year was quite a year of uh, let's say. Yeah, of rupture and uh, and uprisings, interesting, especially when you look back at it from now, when things are have been uh, have, yeah are a bit more quiet at the moment.
0: Yeah, and and um, and why do you think that? I mean, like beyond a certain nostalgia for you know 2011, why mm-hmm. do you think it's it's important or useful to, to to focus on this on the things that were happening at that time?
2: Yeah, well, I think in the, in the case of London, I think it sets a bit of the context for what London is right now, right? I mean, like this, uh, f- well, the, the financialization of, of real estate is like continuously booming. Uh, people are being pushed out to the fringes. So I think some of the conditions that have created the London riots haven't gone away. So I think this, this potential for yeah people to fight back the encroachment into their urban spaces, into their private spaces, um, is still there. So... I think that's also something that we see in the music of Gaika, right? Yeah, I
1: mean, I think that this is the kind of uh, probably like a good point to launch into the actual episode specifically that it it does yeah, the music does kind of convey something of not just the um, past and present moment but uh, particularly with his Spectacular Empire project uh, moves towards speculating on the future of uh, London as a city but more broadly and that... Um, is kind of fundamentally uh, something that can be useful to other people who experienced uprisings in the 2011 moment. Um, I just want to, yeah, like uh, say before we begin, there's quite a lot of references that come up throughout yeah. the throughout the show and um, there's links to the videos and the music and any other kind of essays that we talk about in the show notes. Um, and we'll just... Uh, fade in now with Ash and her first experience with Geiger's music.
3: The the first time I came across Geika's work, which was, um, I was at a friend's house in Peckham, there was a bunch of us, um, we'd gotten loads and loads and loads of chicken wings and we we're just sitting there eating and just really just like, you know, monged out and um, someone had just put security on. And I was like, am I allowed to swear? It's not meant for actual radio. I was just like, fuck, I've not heard something like this which has this eeriness and the sense of, you know, um, moving amongst something that's either, you know, decaying and on its way out was some monstrous structure that's about to emerge. It was really, I mean, would I say it was a pleasant listening experience? No, it was an intensely powerful one. And it, f- for me, feels really bound up with the changes that I'd witnessed in London, particularly around the Haygate estate, particularly, um, you know, particularly around that um, very violent process of, social cleansing and then architectural transformation. We fought really hard to keep that estate and for a long time we thought we might win it. And then suddenly it's like it's like the the opposite of a scar, it's just something that was there isn't. And I could not help but read that tone of mourning, that's insecurity as well as like something that's kind of um enraged and you know like an exposed nerve but there is also this kind of tone of mourning and I couldn't help but read it onto you like imagine walking past the Haygate estate with your kids and saying that's where you were born and you're just now pointing up into air where your flat was like to me that seems intensely violent and that seemed really bound up with um, listening to security. <sighs>
4: Never been the guy So keep on the eye You know my dog, the vibe Who no pick up and hide When we come your your dance Girl, turn out the lights and vibe. Girl, turn out the lights Girl, turn out the lights Turn out the lights Turn out the lights Real niggas, all dance popping Jarrah vibes like it's Formula One Bitches, just um, wine for me, the on top It's snowing the them come They still gonna flock cause the blocks too hot When I get that I use gloves this with a boost just knock Big body Benzes, is better man go Fully bulletproof coming dog them a while All the while I be pushing all the while The exhibition niggas them are locking upstairs just the super black my downstairs
1: You're listening to PMVD off of Geika's 2016 mixtape Security, which Ash was talking about before. Security was also the name of a short film Geica released alongside the mixtape, which starts with the following spoken word.
5: I stand here but it's not the front line. I can see Mayfair and smell Chinatown and cats want brown and white. Kat walks up and down re and takes pennies from tourists to show them a good time. But they will never see a good time like us. Rambo's is at the junction of Shaftesbury and Charing Cross above the cafe. The Chinese chef cooks anything I want and buy five. pack time, with strippers, bouncers, C.I.D. and nasty night. And every now and then someone famous comes in because... Okay. And I stay week because... Okay. I drink brandy and then breakfast. Okay. okay. Her name is Lala, a man hates me because I give her money and take her to nice place. She wears nice dresses and I wear
1: black hair brace we go to ramble. The beginning of the film features a shot of the London skyline, with the shard and the city in the foreground, overlaid with the following text. Burner phones cast in gold, quietly hum with rage. Gunmen and shaman united. We are all so afraid. This is my city. These are my streets. In a state of emergency. Welcome to London. In this episode, I'll talk to Ash Sarkar and Gaika about London, its built environment, its people, its security apparatus, its housing market, its near future and its recent past, particularly as it relates to the legacy of the London riots. The London riots broke out on the 6th of August 2011 in the North London district of Tottenham, in reaction to the death of Mark Duggan, who was shot dead by police two days before. In the following days, rioting spread to other areas of London and the rest of England, accompanied by looting and damage to property. The riots' causes are still debated. Right-wing commentators often place the blame on the breakdown of social morality and the development of gang culture, while progressive voices tend to attribute the causes to a combination of factors, including the effects of austerity, racial tension, and resentment at the excessive police targeting of young people, and especially young people of colour, in the neighbourhoods most affected. I first encountered Geiker at Amsterdam's Progress Bar in 2016, just before the release of security, and five years after the London riots. There, he talked about the impact they were still having on the music he was making. I asked him the same question when he was in Amsterdam again the following year.
4: I don't think London rights affected what I'm working on now because I think a lot of young people got locked up and then now they've got let out and they're out riding mopeds, you know, terrorising people. And I think, you know, the, the problems of deprivation in the inner city of London had not been tackled and there's been kind of an escalation in terms of antagonism between people, you know, in what portions of our society and the rest of our society. And, uh, you know, I think London riots were sort of symptomatic of you know, what has, it was the first sort of, well not the first, but one of the first inklings of uh, the discontent that has kind of led us to where we are today. We're about to leave the European Union, you know, we've got crime, rising crime and unemployment, we've got political instability. I travel around the world, you go to on the planned cities when there is civil disturbance it can't be contained, just as the London riots, they could hardly contain it. Because they just, what are you gonna do? You can't get the people. And then, actually, with the development that's happened since the riots. It's, even, it's, you know, it's even more potential for that, because now you've got, you know, some cardboard block of flats just dropped there, and you're going underneath and different levels and different layers. And, you know, I'm not against, you know, I'm not, I'm not for like, I'm not, it's not that I'm against that per se, but it's more like, it interests me in terms of like, what happens when you have, you know, the the, the unfairness that even that action has created that comes back to, to fight those people. You know what happened, you know, there was, uh, it was on a iPhone, um, sorry, Blackberry Live, and all the gangs were saying, right let's stop fighting each other and go and fight the police. So again, technology allowed them to to, to communicate in this like encrypted way with each other and plan these things and evade capture. They just had to jump on the police. This is is when police had the level of funding they had then. What about now? What about in five years? So the conditions are exactly the same, they sort of expanded or enhanced. Mm -hmm. More kind of war, rabbit warren like development, more like social media, you know, and, and like encrypted technology and communication, more deprivation, more unfairness, uh, more sort of like, um, what's the word, like authoritarian government, more security cameras.
1: I also asked Ash to comment on the legacy of the London riots, especially in terms of how they relate to Geika's music.
3: I mean, I can't I can't speak for Geika's art. I can talk about my sense of his work. I can't talk about his sense of his work in relation to these things. And also, yeah, I'm a woman of colour. Yeah, I was, you know, raised around that neighbourhood. Um, you know, working class women of colour, but it's different from being a black man. So it's also how you... Um how you metabolize those events. Those are two different things. But, but I can talk about my sense of the riots and its um impact on London on, on politics. It's, it's weird. So there, there are two levels, right? One is on the ground where the failure to deliver any semblance of meaningful justice for the Duggan family and also for Ezell Rodney's family and also for Jermaine Baker's family and also for Smiley Culture's family and also Sarah Reed's family. It's a wound which never heals over, ever. And you might... And it's... it's, it's I don't know how much you know about how these legal proceedings have dragged on. Um you know, how the inquest opened up the potential for a critique, but then closed it down again, right? Like, you know, the coroner's report um, gestured towards something not right has gone on, which is something we all knew. How do you magic a gun out of thin air? How does a man who's surrounded on all sides throw a gun that no one saw be thrown over some railings, right? All of us fucking knew that that was a plant. and it opened the door for possibility and also shut it. And and imagine being someone's mother or aunt and it's not even that it's just been 100% suppressed. It's like you can see that even within power itself, there is a tacit recognition that what has happened is fundamentally unjust, except like it, it cannot absorb or confront that directly. Similarly, with the case of Sean Rigg, the, you know, successive court cases, the last of which has just failed to nail one police officer for for perjury, is that the horizons of justice got smaller and smaller. Right, you go from holding the police accountable for manslaughter, and then it suddenly like perjury. You know, it gets smaller and smaller, and then it's taken away entirely. I think that's excessively cruel, and. What that means for the families is that that is a psychological wound that will never heal. And then spatially, and this is where we think about the corrosive effects of those 24-hour magistrates' courts that ran after the riots. We had someone get six months in prison for stealing a bottle of water. You had pregnant women given custodial sentences for handling stolen goods. And you've had particularly in areas like Hackney. Gentrification accelerated in those gaps that were left where people once were. So you had a kind of devil's bargain struck by the forces of criminal justice and then also real estate and capital, which were able to accelerate those processes, particularly in East London. and. You know, now in Tottenham, you're seeing it more and more. So I'm from North London. Um, and and people remember. People remember. And this one, I talk so much about the power of mourning and the power of grief. And I think that riots are a form of grief. Riots are a form of saying, like, you can't just take someone away from us. You can't just kill someone. You can't just deduct someone from the social fabric and expect that that has no consequences also in many of the areas which sparked off writing that was um part of um they had been affected by like a police study into um how effective excessive stop and search was so you can't immiserate people entirely and then deduct someone from the social fabric and expect it all so to be the, the same
1: you're saying that the the areas that saw uprisings um were also the same areas that were targeted for this experiment into excessive stop and search yeah. okay all right, um, and um,
3: also the data collected by that shows that stop and search has zero effect on reducing violent crime So
1: this is something that you, you covered in um, a, an interview the other day with uh, I can't remember the guy's name Adam Elliot Cooper, yeah. who is excellent this interview is well worth a watch and is available on Navarra Media's YouTube channel as well as being linked to in the show notes to this episode broadly covering the role of the police it proposes a radical approach to policing which centres on social harm here's one of the most interesting clips
6: not only does the is the role of the police not really something that reduces crime. It also re reproduces dominant power structures, right? Um, so what do we mean by that? We mean that if you're suspected of handling a gun in Tottenham, um, you'll probably be arrested. In fact, if you're Mark Duggan, you're executed on the spot without anyone asking any questions. Um, but if you sell F 16s to Saudi Arabia or Israel, you'll probably get an OBE, right? This is this, and this is the role of the police. Um, if you're suspected of um, Smoking a spliff on Brixton High Street, you can expect to be stopped by the police. But if you sell highly addictive um, antidepressants through the pharmaceutical markets, you're a pillar of British industry, right? If you, there are there are there are mothers who were given custodial sentences for handling stolen goods which were appropriated during the unrest of 2011. But if you invade Iraq, cancel all oil contracts, um, write new oil contracts of your uh, multinational oil companies. And kill million odd people, you you know you'll be made Middle East peace envoy, right? So there's this. The role of the police isn't isn't just a failure in terms of um, their capacity to reduce what we consider to be crime. It's also the fact that they um, are there to police poorer people, to police working class communities, particularly communities of colour, and reproduce the power of the state, reproduce the power of capital.
3: That's the effect that the riots has had on the ground. And, you know, there's a tremendous amount of, you know, so people that have now moved into Hackney or have now moved into Tottenham, do you think they know what it's like to have grown up on like the Northumberland Park estate or, you know, um, on Meridian estate and have experienced so many forms of immiseration and then on top of that to have your homes like taken away from you, either through gentrification or aggressive regeneration plans? No. And someone who, uh, another MC who I'm now working for, he was like, how is it that I'm 32 years old and I know personally two people who've been shot and killed by police from Tottenham, right? Mark Duggan and Jermaine Baker. And, you know, experientially, that's the dissonance and the rub of gentrification, right? So that, you know, you have these figures um, living next door to each other and completely different life experiences. Like, you can have moved to Tottenham, you can send your kids to the state school because, you know, decent quality education in Haringey, but you're not part of the community. You don't know what it's like to live that life. And, you know, and even me, I don't know what it's like to live that life either. But asking to measure its political impact in terms of how has it changed social policy, how has it changed... Um, the ruling class's sense of what um, vulnerable people need, it hasn't. And and it's terrifying that amnesia, right? So we're talking about cultural memory and um, it's bizarre that there seems to be no institutional memory of those uprisings. There's like an intentional forgetting, whereas what is in the minds of people is so rich, layered, detailed, and alert. It also, it felt different in different places. Um, so for, it just so happened that over the nights of, um, you know, the successive nights of the riots, um, I found myself like kind of at the center of what I was kicking off at each time. not um, Not really deliberately, just sort of, it's how it worked out. So I was in Tottenham for night one, night two was when it was like Enfield and Edmonton and uh, you know, just kind of more areas around North London. Then night three, I remember really, really clearly because I ended up going all the way through Whitechapel, through Hackney and then looping down and walking down to Elephant and Castle through Camberwell and, got to my flat, student gaff, and everyone was out and I was like, where are you guys? And they were like, oh, we're, we're in like, Clapham because Clapham was getting smashed up. Um, and so I went to Clapham. And particularly, so across those three nights, there were three very different moods each time. Um, first one was like rage, disbelief, the way that word spreads on, Night one is rumour. You've got no idea what's true, but it sounds true. Like, did the cops beat up a 16-year-old? Is that what sparked everything off? That was what everyone was, like, passing from, like, ear to ear. And it tapped into something. It tapped into something very, very chaotic. Night two, I remember coming out of the station at uh, Enfield Town, and it was like, so tense, and there were just opposing, like, battle lines of young people who, if I'd been a couple of years younger, they would have been my schoolmates, wearing hoodies and had, like, scarves over their faces, and one or two had brought, like, their own dogs, and then there were the police dogs and tremendous amounts of body armour, and... I remember like, it was, it was so, so tense. It was, it was like the air was denser. It was like walking out and being met by like a solid. And then a scuffle broke out. And then I just remember like the police dogs and two policemen and just like, some like, it must've been a kid, like a, gr- a gray tracksuit leg, like sticking out from under like the melee and it was, was mad but it was like very purposeful it was like people had planned that antagonism and were ready for it and then the third night because I'd done all that walking I saw all the different moods from Whitechapel which was like almost had a sense of like Paris Commune and taking back spaces and people trying to build makeshift barricades but didn't really didn't really work. you know it's not much to build a barricade out of in Whitechapel. And then through hackney was frightening. Like anyone who, who romanticizes these things completely, I think's a fucking idiot. Um, it, was, it was frightening. Um, if like it felt nihilistic in a way that other antagonisms I'd seen hadn't felt. And I think that it speaks to the level of social, state and economic violence that Hackney has endured. And then walking down through Elephant and Castle and Campbell, I was just like betting shops and pawnbrokers that had been smashed up. So like, I don't know, it almost felt like like a form of vengeance and then when we got to Clapham everyone was like helping each other out carrying like the big TVs it was there was like this tremendous camaraderie um you know it was it was kind of beautiful it was really um you know there was something very social about it because that was like you know you know the Lucy Parsons thing of like we must devastate the avenues where the wealthy live it was like that in real life because it was Clapham.
0: You have
7: my
1: money. You're listening to Loot, produced by Geiger in collaboration with God Colony. The track was released as part of his project The Spectacular Empire, which he initiated a few months before we met in late 2017. Geiger introduced The Spectacular Empire with a wide-ranging piece of speculative fiction published in Days Digital, also entitled The Spectacular Empire, and featuring the subtitle What happens when authority is destroyed? When a city falls and is taken over? This is an explosive history of the future. Spanning several decades, the text imagines the future of London, the UK and the rest of the world, beginning in the immediate future of winter 2018, where, amid rising youth unemployment, Brexit-induced economic and political instability, and continuing cuts to public services, a standoff emerges in various UK cities between police and young people of colour, many of whom begin turning to scooters and motorcycles as an effective means of evading the police in dense urban areas. Taking cues from the real-life rise in motorcycle-related crime in the UK, it details certain gangs using the spoils of their criminal activity to further modify their motorbikes, thereby increasing their technological advantage over the police. This growing advantage in turn generates new concentrations of power in several of the more organised gangs. In response to large-scale evictions and social cleansing, the increasingly politicised gangs oversee mass squatting of largely empty, foreign-owned housing in central London areas, causing a spiralling process of property price depreciation, which gets so extreme that the House of Saud initiates a mass buyout of their London property holdings. At this point, the narrative begins to zoom out to the global scale. With London serving as a significant node in a global rebalancing of power. The bike gangs become more organised and revolutionary as they begin to receive financial and logistical support from foreign powers, particularly China, Russia, and Iran, with the battle between the government and the gangs now serving as a proxy for the clash between Anglo American and BRICS countries. I asked Geiger what led him to write the text.
4: I, I kind of wrote that because I, I felt like i wanted to do whatever small thing i could do to kind of push back against the kind of you know even more like encroaching kind of um, influence of kind of like really twisted like right-wing classist racist sexist kind of ideas um that were really becoming the normal and, and like kind of like undoing, you know, however many years of, of, of kind of a like liberal government and all these people. Suddenly it's like, oh fair to be posh, it's oh fair to be racist. It's oh fair to be, you know, um, a misogynist or homophobic, or transphobic. So suddenly that's like, oh, that's the thing. And I thought, well, no, nah, like, this is this is a battle for power. As an artist, what I want to do is kind of engage in that battle for the minds of people.
1: Here's Ash discussing Geica's development from security to the spectacular empire.
3: When I first listened to security, and also you think about, you know, the the lyrical content of it and how um, it is very different from... The work he has since put out, which is kind of more hinged on sexual and romantic relationships, is that with this, it really was this feeling of resentment or vitriol and you know sadness, and it was, you know it struck me as a a, a very serious, you know, grave man. And then it was only through those the processes of having multiple conversations about insurrection and in economics is that there's a real playfulness as well. So when we're talking about like, you know, it's it's kill or be killed, like what you're going to do is that that's also like, there's a like little irrepressible Labrador in there being like, oh, it's kill or be be killed. Like there's a real moment of antagonism here. And so I think that's, a certain playfulness which you see in the spectacular empire which you don't necessarily get in security which is what if I just flip this around on you like you know here is the setup of surveillance as you know and what if I just turn that around what if I make you feel really uncomfortable with these relations of looking and I'm able to do that because I'm the artist and you've you know stepped into my space and kind of you know my my ideology really and so I can fuck with you a bit
1: that role that he's kind of playing of being very playful and stuff, like, I mean, you know, th- th- that has a role to play in kind of sparking people's imagination, right?
3: There's something like BFO-esque about his playfulness, which is the kind of like irrepressible energy from being embedded in a concrete antagonism. Because when you think about political antagonism, in a bloodless way, all you have is misery versus misery and then you end up feeling really miserable. Whereas actually if you're in it and you've got a bit of skin in the game and you can kind of, you know, see those like inches of territory won or lost, then you do become a bit playful. And I think that it's hinged on moments of possibility. And it's interesting to see uh, Bifo reflect on the 1970s and work that he's putting out now. He talks about, um, in Bologna, and the autonomists putting out this kind of ridiculous material, where they were like, you know, what what do we stand for? We stand for the creation of a weightless life. We all want to have an aristocratic life. Like it's just really silly. And you know, Bifo talks about you know the ironic lightness of actually existing communism or you know a possible communism, which is not definable in any way. And I think that you know that that shift towards playfulness from security to spectacular empire is like it's not the Um, Possible communism, which isn't definable in any way that Bifo talks about necessarily, I think is a much wider set of social antagonisms. Um, But certainly with the opening up of a possibility, I think it allows a bit of playfulness like daylight to just sort of bleed through.
0: Hey, just a quick message. If you're also interested in alternative economic models, then consider supporting Field Architecture because we need your support in order to sustain this podcast and make more episodes like this one. Go to failedarchitecture.com support to figure out how you can support us. And now back to the episode with Kaika, Ashoka and Charlie.
1: Reading the Spectacular Empire text reminded me of an article written by David Graeber for The Baffler, in which he seeks to explain the global appeal of London housing. He eventually concludes that it's due to the fact that it seems like an extremely safe investment, writing that if one is a nouveau riche construction magnate or diamond trader from Hong Kong, Delhi or Bahrain, one is keenly aware that at home something could still go terribly wrong. Revolution, a sudden U-turn of government policy, expropriation, violent unrest. None of this could possibly happen in Notting Hill or Chelsea. Any political change that would significantly affect the most wealthy was effectively taken off the table with the glorious revolution of 1688. I brought Graeber's argument up in my conversation with Geiger. David Graeber wrote this also a couple of years ago about, um, what is it that people are investing in when they invest in London? Like, what is so valuable about London property? Like, it, or what? What's so? It's you know. Okay, some some billionaires have like, mm. you know, they can buy all they want there, mm. but that's not the reason. He was kind of he kind of like went through several, and he kind of concluded that it was the historic defeat of the British working class, right? That, but also this kind of that like, if you put money in London, it's, it's safe. But what's quite interesting about the spectacular empire scenario is that you're saying it's not safe. This well, yeah. Um, That's exactly my point. Yeah,
4: I do, it's like I say it all the time. It ain't safe in here. Like it's not. Like, would you think it's gonna happen if you if you, you, you abuse the mass of people to in in a such a ridiculous way? You know, like the 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 crash. And the subsequent bailout, and then the riots that followed. You know, you like a massive transfer of wealth from, you know, like what should be like the public purse into the into the hands of private individuals, and it's like sooner or later something's gonna go off. And you know, your Spectacular Empire is saying, "Look, can you not see?" Or the text anyway was like, "Can you not see the, the early signs of it?" Can you? This is what could happen, and it's maybe what needs to happen. But it's like, you know, my thing is authority power is fragile, and it's also, you know, created by the passage of, of all the recording of history, and that power is is within the grasp of everyone. So, you know, yeah, it's definitely that. Like, it's nice
1: to entertain these scenarios. I think quite a bit. Like, you know, yeah. to sort of think like, you know, what you'd have to do is have like a. Very kind of concerted push. Yeah. On one, one Hyde Park. Yeah.
4: And it becomes a squat again, you know? It's, look, One Hyde Park is empty, un, undefended luxury property in the proximity of loads of sort of on the, you know, unhoused or underhoused people. And it's only the, the, the fear of the rules which prevents that imbalance from being changed.
8: One Hyde Park. Located in London, the leading city for business and commerce has become the world's most iconic residential development. With property prices in prime central London reaching new record highs, rising almost 38% since 2009, One Hyde Park represents a valuable investment. Set in an unparalleled location, to the north, the glorious tranquility of Hyde Park. To the south, Knightsbridge, one of the finest shopping districts in the world. As the first European residences at Mandarin Oriental, One Hyde Park offers legendary service, 24-hour concierge, valet, housekeeping and a discreet security team, ensuring residents comfort and safety around the clock. A unique collaboration between world-renowned architects Rogers Stirk Harbour Partners and award-winning designers Candy & Candy has resulted in the very highest specification ever achieved, with over £1 billion spent on its development. One Hyde Park has bucked every trend in UK property, setting a new global benchmark for luxury residential living. Representing a secure investment in the current economic climate, some existing owners have already seen a substantial increase in capital value in excess of 80%. Independent research has predicted that London will lead the way with super prime residential developments, with One Hyde Park expected to hit £10,000 per square foot by 2016. Own the legacy, experience the exceptional.
4: I did it the day. I think it's one of the number one failures of, sort of, like, laissez-faire capitalism, the, the people that you have to exploit in order for you to get richer. Like, unless you kill them, it's going to cause you a problem, bottom line. Like, unless you kill them and, like, turn their bodies into food, then, then, then you one somewhere along the line there's going to be a problem. For you to be rich, somebody needs somewhere to be poor. Now, that only works when you have a defensible position but this comes back to the space the city of London is not a defensible position because it, of its shape and size and, and nature it's it's, a, yeah it's kind of chaotic yeah, it's, a, it's, a, yeah. it's chaotic on a, on a bank of a river <laughs>
1: and it's literally never been planned in yeah
4: else, it's yet. never been planned look what, you know, what if there was a... What if there was a, you know, like, some kind of kind of war that I've described in the Spectacular Empire, you know, and kids start setting up mortars on Crystal Palace? How are you going to get them? You know what I mean? Like, how are you going to get them? But we haven't... Our minds we never think about that possibly happening in our cities. But, like... I mean... Why, though, you
1: know? So in our interview, Geiger said that London is not a defensible space in as much as it would be difficult to maintain control in the event of an insurrection or to prevent mass squatting. Uh, How much do you agree with that?
3: I mean... So when I hear that, my response is, well, which London, right? Because London's so huge and it's been so unevenly developed and built over and the acceleration of uh, transformations in the urban landscape is so patchy that when you're talking about holding a space around Whitehall and you're talking about holding a space around Whitechapel those two things are completely different and so when you think about going back to you know Newman's ideas around um defensible spaces. One of the things that's central to the idea of defensible space is unequivocal sense of ownership of that space and also surveillance. And I think that as we've seen um, the legacy of residential modernism become eroded in London, um that sense of ownership of space and that sense of you know hyper surveillance is is very much you know is very powerful, so in its strictest sense, those spaces are defensible. Does that mean that those spaces are impregnable? Does it mean that they are not in some way socially volatile that they can't operate as catalysts for something that they don't rely on hyper exploited human labor well no.
1: You mean these spaces that, um, in particular, you mean the central London spaces? Central and, London and spaces. And particularly that they rely on the fact that they are, like, the sense of ownership of, like, a ruling class is quite quite strong, you mean? Like yeah. And, and I mean, quite impregnable.
3: I mean, and also the kind of um, spaces of, like, regeneration as well. So I'm thinking a lot about new builds um, in kind of outer inner London, if you know what I mean. So I'm kind of thinking, like, you know, Islington, Hackney, Lambeth. But certainly, spaces around Whitehall that was all designed to impede the power of crowds. Um, What I think is interesting is that London is a city that likes to invisibilize its labor force. And when you think about the difference between, you know, midday, on a Wednesday, in central London, and maybe five o'clock, six o'clock, on a Saturday or a Sunday, in the same spaces.
1: Five o'clock in the morning, or...? Oh,
3: um, I mean, either, really. It's, like, just as dead um, when you kind of get to that non-working time. Um, It's just sort of, you know, hollowed out. It's almost like, you know, the structure's left behind by termites without the termites in them anymore. And so this idea that you can just pour in a labour force, like a liquid, into these receptacles and then pour it away again, um, relies on a huge amount of compliance. And that compliance is certainly coerced and it's enforced, but it's also the product of a certain set of economic assumptions that don't hold true anymore about you do this for a better life rather than an increasingly immiserated one. So, you, you know... You what?
1: I- you mean like you go... About this yeah daily grind.
3: you you work in your you know crappy job in pret, you have an incredibly precarious existence, and you're really working yourself further into poverty that that isn't that isn't sustainable, and I think that you know listening to what Geika was talking about is that that's the kind of moment of switch is that the ruling class cannot imagine that moment of rupture because they have so far not imagined human dignity
1: i am um... You were saying about this, like, invisibilizing of, mm-hmm. of the workforce. I remember getting night buses back from Nights Out, coming from North London to where I lived in Southeast, And, like, you, you know, it was more than half were, were people working on mm. on their way to work at some... I, I don't know where. I didn't, you know, didn't take the time to ask. I was probably a bit bleary-eyed, but...
3: Cleaners, caterers.
1: Yeah, and... I don't really have a point about it, really, but, like, you know, it, it, I think that the this kind of... It maybe leads into one of the other questions I asked about, like, that it's kind of the decanting of catastrophe, like, something that you kind of... I don't know if you had any...
3: I mean, it's interesting that you use the word decanting, right? Decanting, decanting, right? It's a word that's used to describe uh, the forcible eviction of tenants from a housing estate. Yeah. So I'm thinking particularly here... So I mean, so here. I the, think it's
1: a bad word to use, but. Um,
3: oh, no, 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 no! But it's it kind of like. It, it's me been background. on my mind lately.
1: Yeah. Reading about uh, the Haygate. Yeah, so, I was ju- yeah. I was
3: just going to talk about uh, the Haygate Estate, um, and you know, the way in which uh, London tries to externalize its misery is that it's not successful. Well, or, you,
1: yeah, euphemize as well, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know if that's a word, but to, you know, like apply a word mm-hmm. that is completely dis, uh, dishonest, mm-hmm. um, completely misleading, right? It's, yeah. It suggests this kind of wine being decanted into yeah. another decanter, right? Like it's not uh, at first thought something that...
3: Because because also as humans, as humans, we have a compulsion to return and we have a compulsion to repeat. You don't stay decanted. It doesn't matter how far you're placed. Like, you know, you've had Haygate residents who were rehoused... Um, you know, multiple boroughs away. You've had other people who from Newham are rehoused as far as like Birmingham and Coventry. But the fact is, is that we are capable of memory, we are capable of grief and we're capable of rage. So while the process of decanting is violent and its purpose is to try and estrange people from a social ownership of space, I don't think it can ever be entirely successful because... It doesn't matter that residents from Haygate were moved several boroughs over, or it doesn't matter that residents from Newham were rehoused in Birmingham, Coventry, etc. We are capable of memory, we are capable of grieving, and so we are capable of resentment. Like, we carry a memory and a physical yearning for spaces that we once inhabited. So to look up at the Haygate estate and that space which was once your home and is now just air, that's a violent process. And I think as humans, we have that compulsion to return and to repeat. So, we're all like Lot's wife, looking back at something that we shouldn't want, and you know, turning into salt. And I think that's powerful.
1: Do you, I mean like I I guess these huge huge amounts of developments sort of cropping up. The way that they're presented is quite innocuous, but actually, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, a it's a bit not always
3: tenuous. it's not always presented as innocuous, and that's the interesting thing. Um, is that there is kind of like a weird, like. I don't know. I, th- I think someone needs to write like a psychopathia sexualis of like, um, you know, redevelopment ads because that was a really weird one which was advertising a luxury development like in the city.
1: The Red Road one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: The one where it was just like this really unhappy guy like, you know, seeking solace in like fighting with his missus and, yeah. you know, coke and then he kind of looks out over his like marble worktops.
7: They say nothing comes easy. And looking back, it's hard to disagree. The mornings that felt like night. The days that melted into months and years. The missed opportunities. The doubts. The need to be different. To define yourself. To be more than individual. To stay true to what you believe. Make the impossible possible. To rise and rise. They say nothing comes easy. But if it was easy, then it wouldn't feel as good. To look out at the city that could have swallowed you whole and say, I did this. To stand with the world at your feet.
1: Tom Gann, who does the um, New Socialist. He once compared the way that, like, the neoliberal Mm -hmm. project of London is going is like a gnostic fantasy. Like, as in that we're... Eventually, the ideal will be that there are no humans in London. Mm. You know, that, like, we'll try and get smaller and smaller amounts of um, square foot. Like, so that only, you know, the most intrepid young white male type person (laughs) is able to actually you know, exist in this place. I, I mean, like, I feel like, yeah, this kind of fits into what I mean, saying. it's
3: also, I mean, I'm going to, it's like, oh, God, I really hate myself for this. <laughs> um So that is the contradiction of capitalism, right? Is that it's constantly trying to create conditions in which you don't need a human labour force, right? And that's why, you know, in the Grinch recently, Marx talks about the contradiction of fixed capital, is that on the one hand, it um, immiserates, it makes... Uh, work is much more precarious. And on the other hand, it's also presupposing the conditions of the abolition of work itself. And so it's really an impossible economic model. And when you look at how gentrification works hand in hand with other economic shifts that are occurring in political economy, like automation, you're in a situation where you look at a city like London and you're like, well, how how hollowed out can this urban space be before it collapses in on itself, right? Because, you know, you think about, you know, it's almost like, you know, a black hole that started like, you know, in the city and then is kind of, you know, expanded outwards of like, you know, displacing humans from homes so that they're just shells for capital. How long can that go on for? before it just all collapses inwards. And then the other thing is the process of automation, right? Between 20 and 47% of jobs are going to be automated. That means between 20 and 47% of people are going to be excluded from the means of survival.
1: Within the system that we're... Within the system that we have.
3: Within the system that we have. So what is that going to lead to? Are are 20 to 47% of people just going to die? Because that's what that means, right? You don't make money, like you die.
1: Which comes back to the thing that Gaika was saying, yeah. Do you, like... You kill them, or do they rise up in a kind of violent insurrection, or do they start taking control?
4: In Britain, the kind of some of the social upheavals in Britain, in terms of the class system, haven't been addressed like they have in the rest of Europe. You know, and so it's like it's like this one big skirmish that's like waiting to happen. My friend once said to me. When you go to Paris, right, and you uh, you go towards what's it a statue? You know, the, the, at the Bastille. Right. Yeah. It's just there to let every French head of state understand: if you take it too far, we will kill you. You know, we don't have that in Britain. Like you know what I mean? We don't, we like we don't. We are all sort of subjects of the of of, of a monarch. So you know. Essentially, people have kind of, without even realizing it, accept this inherent unfairness. And our morality is driven by what you're supposed to do at your station, not what you're supposed to do because it's the right or positive thing to do, you know, or it helps others. Or, you know, I believe that I choose to be positive, so that's why I kind of focus my stuff in that direction. And I think that, you know, power isn't is not isn't God-given, you know, or isn't this kind of like falls from the sky on the on the head of of, of, of the chosen few, and, and they, they they live in that unfairness, and they tolerate it when they feel like they get something in return. When when people feel that they're not getting anything in return for living under power, of, under the power of others, then problems start to arise, and I think that can be, it's a very short debate it's a very short internal debate and I think what it can happen quite quickly yeah it can happens, happen right? this is the thing
1: but this is what's quite like city architectural like you know a bit mm. environment based about it right is that like the city actually works to kind of like contain these kind of hmm. interactions I suppose right and like I think that was what was quite kind of encouraging about well that the, there's this key aspect of the spectacular empire text which is the motorbikes right mm. like their ability to evade the kind of typical apparatus yeah. of, of control of a particular urban environment, right? I was wondering
4: if you had... Yeah, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of my work is essentially rooted in assessing the context or placing placing the emotion, the story within the context, placing the people within the space, right? So, it's like... You know, Spectacular Empire is a story about technology and the built environment and space and how the use of technology can kind of change the, the sort of meaning of the space, can, can change the kind of like value system in the space. Because, wait a minute, if, you know, if you've got big empty buildings, you got people can can move very quickly and... <laughs> Inhabit those places or, or or take over those places before they can be moved up without a massive loss of life. Then it just becomes a it just becomes a, a, a battle of wills between them and the authority. You know what I mean? Um, and that's only possible because of the metrics of the space and because of the metrics of what's happening within it, right? And it, you know, I, I felt like in in London. Yeah, you know, i i moved to, to West London and West Central London. I was like, so much empty buildings. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. And these like narrow back alleys that like, what are they gonna do if people are gonna score these buildings then can't get a tank through there.
1: You're listening to Crown and Key, the lead single from Geika's debut album, released 27th of July 2018 on Warp Records.
4: Stand up and Chabas with the cup as man with show no oh, love Na 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 Look and give us na 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 When I pass to Salute for the king Raisin' horse, no Garry strip everything Every crown and key Every blood clotting Every crown and key Every blood clotting When I pass to Salute for the king Raisin' horse, no
3: What is the social effectiveness of insurrection? And that's a really, really difficult question to answer because if you look at it historically, human history is perhaps the failure of insurrectionist moments rather than movements. And on the other hand, you need moments of rupture for any particular, you know, to achieve any change whatsoever. I think particularly in the UK, when you witness the breakup of hegemony, it's very rarely precipitated by an insurrectionist moment. It's normally like a kind of recomposition of, you know, people versus power blog. And what's interesting to me about the history of rioting uprisings in the UK is that they kind of come in the middle of hegemonic blocks they don't seem to like either usher in something new or end something um thinking about uh the uprisings of the 1980s really the consequence of broadwater farm and brixton and toxteth and handsworth was state multiculturalism or state culturalism whatever way you want to look at it um you know which was a huge project but you know in terms of its its impact on neoliberalism it didn't begin neoliberalism it didn't end neoliberalism it just sort of added this other strain to how neoliberalism could function you know the functions of, of representation um and similarly with the riots did it usher in anything new no it accelerated some processes that were already there did it end anything well you know um some communities were very aggressively broken up, but you know it's not a totalized project in terms of the funding and social programs which resulted from it, which are which are coercive, right I'm not saying that these are corrective social programs they are coercive um they've n- not been particularly effective, so it's strange, right There are these huge moments and and how we grapple with their meaning um it's quite difficult. It's quite difficult to say how significant they are. I think in people's lives they're significant, but in terms of where power is exercised from, it's not. It doesn't really um, exert a huge amount of control. What's interesting to me is how moments of volatility expose London's vulnerability. Whether that's the uprisings showing defensible versus Pregnable space or reclaimable space however you want to put it or the financial crisis so alistair darling said well look you want to know how bad it was we were two hours away from the atms running dry and do you want to know how long london could last without food deliveries, supermarkets two days
1: so so it's it's it, in an very precarious situation as we speak i suppose right or,
3: and really so that's the thing right capital capital is just as volatile as an immiserated labor force i do think about the experience i know i keep using this word a lot i think about the experience of grief because grieving is is just a wound you carry with with you all the time and there there is no grief like when you speak to someone who has lost their child. And it doesn't matter that that child could have been a man in his 30s. Like, you know, if you're a mother, that's still your baby who's gone. And that's unhealable. And the, you know, lack of avenues for justice, the lack of, you know, the exclusion of that grief from the public sphere until it can bubble up through something like a riot. Um, To me, like, these are all the hallmarks of, of dystopia. Um, you know, yeah, like you can get your like nice ass crabs. That's cool. Um, it's a fleeky dystopia. Um, it doesn't actually ameliorate the conditions at all. In terms of hope, I think we're at a tipping point. I think either the human spirit wins, which means it's a reassertion of the social, of our responsibility to one another, um, for a um, institutionalization of the capacity to love in political economy, or it's the, force, the forces of fascism, warfare, and immiseration. And that's, that's the battle there. Now I'm not saying Corbyn is the emblem of all you know, human love and capacity for fine feeling, but that is the political outlet for holding the far right at bay in the UK, because the ideological heart of conservatism has, ha- has collapsed, right, economic arguments just don't hold water anymore, so you are going to have to, with all its racialized exclusions, all its imperfections, all its problems, you do have to commit to some of the Possibilities offered up by social democracy, like having humans living in homes in London again, which sounds very basic, in order to hold some of those forces at bay. So I guess I feel hopeful would be wrong, purposeful.
1: This is like speculating on one of the most kind of interesting cities in the world right now. I mean, like in terms of like where things are likely to happen. Like it might not be you know, because of the Corbyn project, you know, there's there's actually a kind of opening.
3: I mean, it's, it's, it's also, you know, um, in terms of models of communal ownership, democratized nationalization, all that stuff is interesting. But for me, fundamentally, all I care about, all I care about in the Corbyn project is homes for people. And that's it. Really straightforward.
1: The Failed Architecture project to continue and grow will be relying on the generosity of our subscribers. If you like this episode, please consider supporting us. The support page is easy to find on our website. The link's in bright yellow. I'd like to thank Ash and Geika for speaking on the show, and Freya and Lotta for letting me use their office to interview Ash. And finally, Natalia Dominguez-Rangel for the Failed Architecture theme tune.